right, everyone. Welcome back to our show. Thank you so much for joining us. I am so excited to bring to you a special guest. I'm honored to be sharing his information with you guys. His name is Weldon Long. And um, Weldon, so we... I met you at Bradley's Lightspeed Summit, and that's the first time that I heard you speak. And so I had the honor of listening to your story a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so for my listeners that don't know your story, I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated for a ton of reasons. One, because it's, it's inspiring. It's, it's for me, somebody that's gone through the lowest of lows, somebody that's gone through trials and, and those types of things in their life and is still able to push through and is still able to make it. Right. So I know you've gone, you don't, haven't had the easiest past, you haven't had the easiest upbringing, and just somebody who's able to go through it and make it out and to be as successful as you are, you've made it. So yeah. I, I just want to know so much about <laughs> the mindset of it all, and yeah. your story is so incredible. So can you share with our listeners a little bit about your story? Absolutely. Uh, just to touch on what you just said, though, first, you know, isn't it true, though, that most people that have a lot of really bad suffering and struggle in their life tend to be the ones that accomplish the most? It's kind of funny, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. I mean, personally, I've seen that common thread. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I, you know, listen to people's stories and I feel that without those extreme challenges, yeah. you know, it makes them who they are and they're able to withstand so much more in life than yeah. maybe somebody that was handed everything, you know, right. and I see both sides, but your story is fascinating. And so, and I know it wasn't an easy, easy yeah. <laughs> come up. So tell <laughs> right. us a little bit about. Yeah. So I was a, a real hard case coming up, you know, uh, I dropped out of high school when I was 15 years old in ninth grade. Okay. Uh, thought I was, uh, a tough guy. I want to be a tough guy, whatever. Ended up moving to Colorado when I was in my early 20s. And okay. uh, when I was 23 years old, one night, spun out on cocaine and getting high, I ended up picking up a guy hitchhiking. And I was trying to pawn a shotgun that he and I had. Uh, uh, I had the shotgun. I was trying to pawn it for rent money. Mm-hmm. Found out pretty quickly I couldn't pawn it for enough for rent money. Picked this guy up hitchhiking. We get the bright idea to use the gun to rob somebody. So in 1987, at 23 years old, I uh, held two-minute gunpoint uh, under the influence, obviously, of a lot of drugs and alcohol, and we were quickly apprehended, and before I knew it, I was in front of a judge a few months later and sentenced to the state penitentiary for 10 years. At 23? At At this time, it's still 23. And at that point, had never been to jail before, had never been in any trouble. I was a knucklehead, you know, kind of a garden variety loser for sure, no education, really no path in life. But at 23 years old, I found myself in the state penitentiary system uh, for the robbery charge and ended up doing about four and a half years and was paroled at 27 years old. So I walked out of the penitentiary the first time at 27. I'm still a ninth grade high school dropout. I'm still a knucklehead, no skills, no future to speak of. Now I'm a convicted felon to boot. So I started the process of kind of defining myself as this loser. I mean, yeah, as soon as you get out, so you don't have a story where the time that you were in there, there weren't obviously these classes. I mean, you didn't, did you do like any, I mean, it sounds like personal development when you're in there. That's when you're thinking, I need to do more. No, I was mostly angry and bitter. And it's funny because, you know, one of the questions people ask you when you get to the joint is what are you in for? Right. And so I would always say I'm in because I'm uneducated and poor. 
right? That was my thinking that I was there because like victim of, mindset. Yes, I'm, I'm right. supposed. To, yeah, I wasn't there happening. because because I pulled a gun on somebody. I was there because I was poor and educated. That was the victim stance, kind of the entitlement mentality I had. I so, see. So I get out at 27 years old the first time. Oh I'm back gosh. in the streets, no real opportunities. I make it about two years. I go back to the joint a second time. Yeah. Uh, I hooked up with some guys that I had met in the joint. We went back to the joint on. Uh, Gun charges and parole violations. Went back for about two years. Oh, my gosh. Got out a second time at 30 years old. Still a high school dropout. Still a knucklehead. Now yeah. I'm a two-time convicted felon. Mm-hmm. So not many opportunities for employment. I get a job uh, in the telemarketing industry. I, okay. I tell people I should have been suspicious when they hired me. Right? <laughs> and, oh, my gosh. Uh, thanks so much for their hiring standards. And but so you get the job. You're I'm motivated. Couple, I'm making a ton of money. Okay. Until one day the FBI comes in and with a bunch of other people indicted on federal money laundering and mail fraud charges. And so then at 32 years old, I'm back in prison, this time in federal prison, doing seven years on the, on the federal charges. Well, but it was during that last seven years that finally, you know, the gears begin to click and some really transformational things happened. It was the third time that finally, where are your parents yeah. throughout this? Your so, relationship with them yeah. and... So I was estranged from... Uh, my parents had divorced when I was 18, and I was estranged from my mother. Uh, she was uh, very much in her religion, and because of the way I was living my life, she kind of, you know, kind of wrote me off. My father and I were kind of hit and miss, okay. uh, you know, for, for most of my adult life. But it was, ironically, his death during that last stint in prison that changed my life. In fact, it was June 10th of 1996. Yeah. And I had just started that last seven years in prison. I was 32 years old. You just started when he passed? Yeah, just a couple of months in. And uh, I got a message one day. One of the cops comes in the cell house and gives me a message to call home. And I call home and I find out that my my father had died unexpectedly at 59 years old. And so it was at that moment when I heard that he died, I'm like, you know, my dad went to his grave with me in prison again. Like mm-hmm. that was his last memory of me. Mm-hmm. And so I began to think a lot about my father and I started thinking about a conversation that I had with him a while, just a few weeks before he passed away. It was a Sunday afternoon and I had called my dad on the phone and my dad always took my collect calls. He was always trying to okay. you know, encourage me and hang in there and yeah. that type of thing. And we're having this conversation on the Sunday and I'm belly aching about this and belly aching about that and the ex-wife and the snitch and the prosecutor and the system and the blah and the, the man and the establishment, you know, and all this stuff. And I got this total victim Still, mindset. I was thinking, yes, the oh, victim, yeah, no. he's com- you're Just complaining, completely. complaining. And uh, at one point in the conversation, my dad says to me, he says, you know, son, your life could be worse. And I said, dad, how is that exactly? Yeah. He says, well, you're not dead. You're still breathing. And as long as you're breathing, you've got a shot to change your life. And I really didn't understand the significance of what he said in that moment. So I hung up the phone and kind of said, you know, my love yous to my dad. Yeah. And I never talked to him again. That was the that last was thing the last. he ever said to me. Two weeks later, he was gone. And at that time, I had a three-year-old son okay. that I had fathered when I had been on a parole. Okay. So I began to look at my life and kind of interestingly... Uh, like without the rationalizations and justification, without the bullshit for the first time. Really? And I just like all After of a sudden, he passed. Yeah. All of a sudden. And it was going to that grief, dealing with the reality of my life that I had this father that just died that, mm-hmm. you know, I you know, it was a total disappointment to him. I had this three year old son that I had abandoned my own flesh and blood. Yeah. And just the reality of it hit me. 
Yeah. All of a sudden, the excuses and the rationalizations are just all kind of like, wow, dude, you're just a total freaking loser. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I have come to this realization. Now what? Now I got seven years. I'm not going to get out until I'm 40 at this point. I'm 32. I got seven, seven and a half years to do. And so within hours, literally, of my father dying, and I'm having this conversation in my head. Yeah. I'm devastated emotionally. Mm-hmm. The realization of my father's passing, the realization of what I'd done to my son, the realization of how I destroyed my life and uh, affected negatively the people around me for mm-hmm. so many years. At 32 years old, it hit me. And I made a decision that I was going to change the course of my life. Mm-hmm. So then what did it look like? What did you do? What yeah. could you do when you were in there? That was like the second question. Right? Yeah. Like, okay, I'm going to change my life, right? And then it's like... How? how? How do you change your life? How do you turn the Titanic of that life around? Yeah. With a ninth grade education, three-time convicted felon, not going to be out on the streets again until I'm 40. The connections what aren't the there. People aren't feeding into you. You don't even not... know what to do. Yeah. Right? It's, like, yeah. it's like, so I, I'm, I'm thinking, and I get the bright idea, my master plan, this genius <laughs> plan, uh, with my 103 IQ, yeah. you know, uh, and I had my IQ tested three times. It's always 103. People don't believe that today with some of the things that have happened in terms of success in my life. But every time you go to the joint, one of the things they do is they give you a series of tests. And one of those tests is an IQ test. Right? Really? Yeah, I can't believe how stupid you are. So that's how you, I was going to say, how, why did you take it three times? <laughs> now I know. Okay. I was a little disappointed with the results. I probably would have done it voluntarily. Like, it can't be this bad. But it was that bad. So with 103 IQ and uh, a life, adult lifetime in prison, seven years left to go, I, I decide I'm going to start reading what really successful people do and start doing that. Where did you get that idea? You know, I just, I I mean, where else was I going to go? Yeah. Right? I had access to some books. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, I'm going to read and find out what successful people do. And I'm not going to second guess it. I'm not going to be a skeptic. I'm not going to be a cynic. I'm just going to shut the F up. Yeah. And listen to people through books. Yeah. That was my master plan. So I walk out of my cell. And I'm on the second tier. Picture a cell house like you see yeah. in TV. It's just like that. And you walk out <laughs> the tier. And I walk down to the end of the cell house, and there's a broom closet in the corner of the cell house. Mm-hmm. And in that broom closet was a cardboard box with books in it. Okay. Just cops would come in and throw these books in there. And it was kind of our library in that particular unit. And so I start rifling through the box, and I come across a copy of a book that you're probably very familiar with and your listeners and very familiar with. The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Oh Stephen my gosh, Arcubius. that is and in I, the box, yeah. in the court, in the closet with the broom. Yeah. And you're like, okay, this is it. I'm like, I could stand some successful habits, right? <laughs> so I take that book back to my cell and I start reading it. Yeah. And I couldn't believe what I was reading. Really? And I tell people it probably seems kind of pathetic that at 32 years old, I didn't know some of these things, but I just didn't. Yeah. And I started reading this book. And I tell people that I devoured the book and then I reread it. And then eventually the book devoured me. And it became my roadmap for successful life and many years later, successful businesses. That book changed everything. It was the first book that I read on that journey. And ironically, this is another full circle moment. I picked up that book on June 10th of 1996, the day my, my father died. Many years later, I get out. I build my first successful company. I write my first book. Dr. Covey and I are introduced, we become friends, and he endorsed my first book 
on June 10th of 2009, 13 years to the day later that uh, I picked up his book. And uh, he was a mentor. He passed away uh, four or five years ago Wow! now. And, uh, but just a, a brilliant, wonderful man who I, I used to kid with Dr. Covey. I said, you didn't change my life. You saved my life. And, and this was a mentor that you had reached out to as soon as you got out, or how no, did that relationship no, start? I mean, well, listen, we get into the whole mindset and how we manifest different things, but I'll, I'll tell you real briefly, in December of 2008, I had got out in 2003. Mm-hmm. I built a successful company, grew up from zero to $20 million in five years. Oh, my And I wrote goodness. my first book in 2008. And in December of 2008, I'm talking to the publisher, and they, were, they said, we, who, who would you like to get in, endorsed to endorse the book? Because it was coming out in September of 2009, eight, eight or nine months later. And I said, well, Stephen Covey, of course. I had no idea. You, know, you just could, threw that out there. Well, there had, w- his book had, had been so influential yes, in my life that yes. when they asked me, who would you like to get endorsed? I'm like, instantly. And they're like, you're not going to get a Stephen Covey <laughs> endorsement on your book. We were thinking like, maybe, you know, the mayor in your town or, may, you know, maybe a neighbor. <laughs> well, then you know? they're like, wait. It was crazy. But by that time, and we're going to have to circle back around at some point, but by that time, I had created what I call the prosperity mindset, a mindset that is so focused and so geared and so programmed to thrive in the face of adversity. Yes. It didn't matter to me that these people were telling me I was crazy to get a Stephen Covey endorsement. So what I did is I wrote it down, like I will talk about later, but I write these things down and I meditate on them, as Dr. Covey used to say. Yeah. Basically, uh, just the conscious and unconscious serendipity of the universe kind of sets an emotion. Yep. There's some things that happen neurologically, how we're attracted to certain things. But in December of 2008, I write on a sheet of paper, right? So the next week... Uh, I start with my team, like, okay, we got to try to get this endorsement. So we're calling his agent, we're calling his company, we're sending letters, we're sending manuscripts, nothing for five months. We got for five, for months. five months, and you're like, let's keep going. We're going to keep going. Let's we're not keep gonna going. Do it. It's going to happen. Yeah. One of the things I've learned is you don't have to know how things are going to happen. You just have to know they are going to happen, right? The details oh will work themselves. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so, so after five months, we're getting now – to about six weeks away from the deadline because we're going to hardcover press in in June, right, for a September publication. You don't care. No, we're just hustling. So (laughs) I get invited. This is in May uh, of 2013. No, 2009. 2009. Um, So I get invited to speak at a, a business luncheon in Colorado Springs where I live. And just before they introduce me, it's a small group of people, maybe 50 people, business owners and business leaders in the Springs, and they, just before they introduce me, they ask for any announcements. A guy in the front row stands up and says, uh, most of you know my daughter Julie is Stephen Covey's personal assistant. They're going to be in town next month. If anybody would like to meet them, let me know. And you were like, I'm that's like, how. My jaw's on the floor, right? So, You're like, this stuff works. Yeah. And, well, by that point in my life, I was so convinced because so many things had happened, things you could never predict. We'll talk about some of that stuff, but it's just, it, it, yeah, it was like so crazy. Yeah. So, so I go up and I speak, and while I'm speaking, I often talk about Dr. Covey and the impact of that book in my life. Yes. And this guy in the front row is like nodding his head, and I'm nodding my head. I'm like, exactly, you know? Yeah. I finished speaking, he comes running up to me, and he's like, Dr. Covey needs to read your book. I'm like, no shit, I he know. needs to read my book. I've been <laughs> trying. trying for five months, right? He says, well, you know, my do-. I said, I heard the announcement, right? I was going to approach phone, you, yeah. Calls right on the spot. Julie, honey, I got this guy standing in front of me. Stephen's book changed his life, and now he's got a book of his own. I'm going to send you two manuscripts. So off the books go. A month later, Dr. Covey's in town. They had arranged for me to get a chance to meet him. So we, I go to this event where Dr. Covey's speaking. After the event, I'm standing there talking to this guy that arranged the meeting and yeah. his daughter, Julie. 
And as I'm standing there talking to them, Dr. Covey had gone off to this receiving line to sign books and talk to people. Mm -hmm. So I was just waiting, you know, my turn. And all of a sudden, I feel this hand on my shoulder. And I turn around, and there's Dr. Covey. Oh, my gosh. I had been waiting for this moment for 30 days. <laughs> I had every question outlined I wanted to ask. And when I saw his face, I had nothing. I could not remember my own name. I'm like, uh, <laughs> you know, Dr. Covey. Hey. And he says to me, he says, I loved your book. And I said, I love your book, too. <laughs> you know? Hi, hi. And he hugs me, puts his arms around me. I start crying. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. He was just a man, just a human. Right? Put his pants on one leg at a time and all that. But he happened to be the guy that wrote the words that saved my life. And so I was just overcome with emotion. He puts his arms around me, hugs me for a few seconds. He backs up. He takes his right hand and he places it on my heart. And he repeats three times, you have a divine destiny. You have a divine destiny. You have a divine destiny. I just got goosebumps. And I'm like, what the hell does that mean, Doc? Yeah. And he said, you in this story. People need to know that no matter how far you've gone down, mm -hmm. if you do the right things, if you're determined to do the hard work, you can change your life. Mm -hmm. And we talked for about 15 to 20 minutes, and he goes on about his way. So oh my gosh. the next oh day, my goodness. we start calling his office, because now we got the right connections. We know the people, right? Well, what we learned very quickly the next day, that was a Sunday night. We start calling the next Monday morning, is that, you know, because we were like, you know, he said he loved the book. Could we use that as an endorsement? I'm already yeah. visualizing it. I love this book, Stephen yes. R. Covey, right? Yes. Like, yes. nah, it didn't really happen that way. It's got to go through a committee. There's a vetting period, et cetera, et cetera. We're up against a deadline now yes. to go to hardcover press. So we get the girl to at least call Dr. Covey. And asking him, it's Wednesday before she catches up to him. Okay. And so Dr. Covey, that guy you met uh, Sunday night, wants to know if he can use her endorsement. Yes. And he says, hold on. I learned this later, of course. He says, hold on for a second. Turns to his oldest daughter, Catherine, who just read the manuscript on her trip to meet her father. Yeah. And just happened to be the chairwoman of the committee that makes the decisions on her father's endorsement. Of course she is. Of yeah, course. Exactly. Of, why wouldn't she be? Oh, my gosh. On the spot to endorse the book. They dictated over the phone, and then a few hours later, they follow up with an email for confirmation. And it was on the email that I realized the date was June 10th of 2009, 13 years to the day that my father had died and I picked up that book. It was absolutely The most unbelievable insane. thing you've ever it experienced. It was crazy. And... It all happened before the deadline, obviously, and right on time. And right on time. Yeah, and when that book came out. The Upside of Fear Holy was my first book, and the endorsement from Dr. Covey was absolutely amazing. But you know, we fast forwarded to a lot of this, kind of the end game on this thing. But it was the lessons I learned in that seven years before I got out. Yeah. Because, as I mentioned, by the time this thing happened with Dr. Covey and the endorsement. I already knew that I could manifest pretty much anything I wanted to manifest if I was willing to take the action and do the work, right? I'm not a believer that you could just write something down and meditate and, you know, magically oh. it happens. I will say that I've learned that if you write something down and meditate on it and you have, I don't even say faith. I mean, you got to go beyond faith. you got to okay. go to a point of knowing okay. with certainty that this thing's going to happen, right? Lao Tzu said a thousand mile journey begins with a single step, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Then all you have to do is take the next step and just keep taking the next step with confidence and knowing that it's going to happen. And one day some opportunity is going to come and whatever, I don't care how crazy the dream is, yeah. how crazy the goal is, it will happen. But, but people give up, they, they lose faith, they lose confidence, they become skeptical and cynical. Yes. Oh, it'll never happen for me. I remember one time I was talking to a lady 
she was at one of my trainings and I saw her a while later uh, and she's like, you know, I've been doing this for a week. When does it start working? <laughs> she told you that? Yeah. I'm like, upset at you. Like, this yeah, is not, exactly. what did you tell her? I said, lady, I was in the penitentiary for seven years before I even got out to get started on building, you know, my little empire, you know? Yeah. And so people, I think, and I'm not somebody who says, you know, practice patience, right? There's an old saying, if you pray for patience, God will give it to you. So don't pray for it, right? <laughs> and so yeah. I'm not a particularly patient person. I have a high sense of urgency whenever I do stuff. I can tell that. Can but tell at the that. same time, I think you have to be practical. You got to use some common freaking sense, right? Yeah. There's going to be a period of time, you know, so like I do a lot of business consulting and people will have a business for 15 years. They've driven it to the ground and margins are low. Profitability is non-existent. There's bad culture. You know, it's like people want to quit and turnover's high. Yeah. And like, how long is it going to take to fix it? You're I'm like, like, you know what? It took you 15 years to screw it up. Give me a year. Give me two maybe. Yeah. Right? yeah. Isn't it worth the investment? And sometimes it happens much more quickly. I'm working with a client now that just in six months, we went from doing two and a half, three million dollars a month at zero profitability to doing three and four million a month at like massive profitability. That's it took insane. only six months. So it, it, it can happen quickly, but at the same time we have to be we have to be practical. Right? Yeah. And so that's kind of what we're here today to talk about some of those some of those practical things we can do. That we could put into place, yeah. whether you're a business owner, whether yeah. you're the whether you're the employee, whether you're just getting out of high the school, the rules are the same is kind of what the I'm principles hearing. are the same. Okay. I'll give you a crazy story. So I got a million of them. <laughs> I love them. I so love them. a few years ago, maybe three, four years ago, uh, I was get, had been getting letters from a guy. His name was Mike Long. Coincidentally, no relation. Like, he was doing life in the Nebraska State Penitentiary. Okay. And he was writing me these letters about, you got to come to the penitentiary and see us. We all read your books. And he had this group of guys that were doing really positive stuff together inside the penitentiary. Okay. And this went on for a couple of years. Every now and then I'd write a letter back, you know, and I had time. And finally, I told him, I said, Mike, I just can't show up at the prison gates. I got to get a, an invitation from the administration. Yeah. yeah. Not a week later, I get a letter from someone <laughs> in the administration like, would you please come see these guys? Because they won't stop bugging us about it. Wow. So I happened to be flying a couple of weeks later to Memphis, Tennessee, to speak at a group called Five Star okay. at FedEx World Headquarters. It's their top 200 performers. Okay. And they get together. So I figured, okay, I can, you know, fly into Lincoln or whatever, Nebraska, wherever I was going, Omaha, wherever I flew in, and then drive out to the penitentiary, jump on a flight, be at FedEx the next day. I can make this work. Yeah. So I go in. I spend the day in the penitentiary with, with these fellas, right? I go on down to Memphis. The next day I'm speaking at the Five Star Group with mm-hmm. uh, the co-CEOs, two CEOs of FedEx, the co-CEO of FedEx Services. And their top 200 performers, and the message was virtually identical. That's the crazy part about success principles. They work if you're in the skid row penitentiary life, and yeah. they work if you're the top of the heap, the CEO at FedEx. That's the thing that blows me away. One of the things that kills me is that this That's stuff incredible. we're going to talk about is so freaking simple yeah. that people people often overlook it because it's like, it can't be that easy. Yeah. Right? And it's like, it's so powerful, it'll move mountains, but it's simple, so people discount. The group that, when you went and visited the prison, I mean, what, like, what was that experience? Because you've probably, yeah. you've probably done a, a bunch of conferences or you've spoken well, com- at these prisons. Yeah. And so what's that, what's that like? 
So what is the mindset it's, there? It's, it's, a, it's a unique experience. And I have been, in fact, back to the very prisons where I served time as a young man. I have been back into the cells that I lived in 30 wow. years ago with the cooperation of wardens and security people in the prisons. Uh, in fact, in the federal system down in Florence, Colorado, there's a federal prison complex. There's mm-hmm. a program there called Doing Time with the Right Mind, and my books are part of the curriculum. Really? There's a program in the state system called The Power of Consistency Outside of the Box Thinking, and a group of lifers put it together. Wow. And it's based on, on my first and second book. Oh, my and, goodness. Yeah, it's crazy. So whenever I go back, it's, 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 it's humbling. Yeah. I, like, I don't... I understand where I came from. I'm never too far away from that. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. emotionally, psychologically, mm-hmm. there's a part of me that still thinks I'm that guy on the yard, you know, because uh, I don't, I'm not, I'm not an overconfident guy. I know I can get shit done, but I'm not like some super guy, like nothing bad could ever happen to me. Like I'm one bad day away from being back at a penitentiary, right? One bad day of, yeah. you know, some stupid decisions, who knows? Mm-hmm. And so it keeps me really grounded mm-hmm. because it's easy or people think it's easy for me to get distracted by all the other amazing things that are happening, I right? Mm-hmm. But it really, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. People will see me, for example, I just did a thing with uh, Mario Lopez, who, by the way, is one of the best-looking men. <laughs> I mean, I'm cool with that. <laughs> yeah. So I was on this thing with uh, some extra that he does. And yeah. And it's like those moments of kind of the glitz, the glam, and I've done some national television, a lot of regional television, that kind of stuff. And people think, you know, I, have you kind of lost touch with, you know, where you come from? And, and I haven't. And the reason is I think is because probably eight or ten times a year I'm back on a penitentiary yard somewhere, you know. And, and you're able to be there and yeah. just experience it all over again in a different yeah. way. But, I mean, those people, I mean, those guys, so... It's La Vista Women's Prison. Yeah, Is that so? I've spoken there. I've had a, an opportunity to speak there mm. too, um, and it was incredible because, like. The whole experience is the people that want you to come out there. I mean, just like I'm so grateful, so grateful, and full of energy and hope mm. and positivity, and just like wanting that thing to hold on to of hope. You know, and, and that's 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 the thing. It's the hope that they get from people, uh, in your case, just the, the empathy to go in and take time out of your busy life to do that. In my case, I mean, it's not uncommon. I'm on a yard. I was just down in Florence and my old cellmate was still there. He's doing life. And so I knew he'd be in prison somewhere, but he's on the same yard in the same cell that we were in together back in 97, 98, 99. And so, but what it does for them is when I'm on that yard, people will know me on that yard. Yeah. Guys will say, yeah, we were sellies back together in the 90s or whatever. And so it gives them hope. Like if this guy mm-hmm. can have this, you know, story, this success, then it's possible for anybody. Wow. So take us back really quick. As soon as you get out and you start this business. Yeah. So were you always entrepreneurial? How in the I think, world? So I, I, so we've got to kind of go back a little before that. Let's go back to seven years before I got out when my dad died. Okay. And yeah. I start this journey. Yes. And I start learning about the prosperity mindset. I start learning about the relationship between our thoughts and our reality. Is that what, that, that's what hit you most after reading the book? After reading Seven Habits and then Napoleon Hill and okay. many, many others. And the, the first recollection that I, that I had of all this I was reading a book of philosophical quotes just by all random kind of people. And I came across this quote from Frederick Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. And Nietzsche said, we attract that which we fear. And I remember reading that and thinking, well, that's 
that's ridiculous. Why would I attract things into my life that I don't want? Yeah. Things I fear. So I kind of ignored it. Uh, a couple of months later, I'm flipping through the Bible, and I come across a scripture in Job. And there's a scripture where Job says, Father, that which I have feared has come upon me. And I thought, wow, that's crazy because they're separated by 2,000 years. Yeah. They're separated by philosophy and theology. Nietzsche was an atheist, right? Job yeah. was a God-fearing man. But they're saying the same thing. You're like, there's, there has to be something Gotta behind be a connection. this. connection. Mm-hmm. About that same time, I'm reading a book called Man's Search for Meaning, written by Viktor Frankl, who survived the Jewish, uh, or the German concentration camps. He was a Jewish psychiatrist. And one of the chapters in that book begins with four words, fear may come true. And so I'm like, you know, holy what, is what, is, what is this? Yeah. So here's what I did. I sat down at a little metal desk in my cell, and I started writing out what I feared the most. What and you, you know write? what it was? Yeah. Living and dying in the penitentiary, going out of the penitentiary in a box one day, mm-hmm. never knowing my son, mm-hmm. being broke and homeless the rest of my life. And what had I attracted into my life? Exactly that. My life was a perfect reflection of all the chaos in here. So I said, okay. This was the first glimpse I had of the concept I now refer to as thinking about what you think about. I was going to say, is yeah. the concept behind that? The whole, I mean, because it's what you fear, you're constantly thinking about it? Is well, that- it's a neurological process. Basically, when you have a thought, right, any thought in your brain, your brain's like a little electrical storm, right? All these little synapses firing off. When you have a thought, it sends a signal across your brain to a part of your brain called the hypothalamus. Okay. When the hypothalamus gets the thought, the signal, it secretes a chemical that triggers the emotion that is consistent with the thought. In other words, if you get frightened, something scares you, mm-hmm. your brain starts you know, producing epinephrine and adrenaline, and you have a frightened emotion. Mm-hmm. If you walk in a room and you see a spouse or a kid or a family member that you love, and you have a very happy, warm, and loving thought, your brain starts producing endorphins, right? Mm-hmm. right? And so you have a happy, loving emotion. So the emotions are connected to our thoughts chemically, right? Yes. It's not just a theory. This is just the way the brain works. Yes. When you have an emotion... You take an action consistent with that emotion. So if I walk into a room and I see my son and I say, wow, there's Hunter. And I have this dopamine, these endorphins in my brain. I feel good. Like, oh, my kid's there, right? Yeah. What do I do? Do I walk out of the room? No, I walk over towards him. Walk towards Hi, him. Hi, son. I put my arms around him. What's the result? I perpetuate the relationship. Yeah. So it's thought, emotion, action, result. This little cycle happens a million times a day in our lives. We don't even realize it's going on. So here's what happens. When you have a thought, it triggers the emotions and the actions. Yes. The emotions and actions are always a reflection of your thoughts. Yes. Mm -hmm. Physiologically, biologically, neurologically. Here's the scary part. Your actions and emotions are a reflection of your thought, Mm -hmm. even if your thought is wrong or inaccurate. In other words, if I think something's true, it produces the emotion as if it's true, chemically. Whether it's not, whether it's, it's true, something, right. yeah, You've yeah. heard the expression, right? You know, you know, you know, perception is reality and all that. It, it's true. So let me give you a couple of examples. So about 10 or 12 years ago, there were two young teenage girls, high schoolers. Mm-hmm. They leave school together, and they're in a crash, a very serious car crash. So horrific was the accident that when first responders got there, they couldn't tell which girl was which. This mm-hmm. is a true story. It was all over the news. Mm-hmm. They couldn't tell which girl was which, right? Similar body type, hair, you know, BFS, all that business. Mm-hmm. They got two sets of ID. They can't tell which girl was even driving. Yeah. Right? To make it worse, one of the girls dies. Mm-hmm. Only one survives. They finally figure out the whole mess. One girl goes off to the hospital. Other girl goes off to the morgue. One family goes to the hospital. 
the other family has to do the unthinkable and bury their teenage daughter. Yeah. Right? Five weeks after the funeral, the girl in the hospital regains consciousness, begins to speak. And when she begins to speak, her family realizes this is not our daughter, which meant their daughter had been buried five weeks earlier. At the funeral. mm -hmm. They had a mix-up, right? The other family gets a call. Your daughter's alive in the hospital. Here's the central question. During those five weeks, were the emotions and actions of each family based on what was true or what they thought was true? What they thought was true. That's how powerful thought is. You can believe something that's absolutely not true Mm -hmm. and produce the emotions and the actions as if it's true. So now you translate that to business. And think about this for a second. Einstein said, you cannot fix a problem at the same level of thinking that created the problem. Oh, my gosh. Makes sense, right? Yes. If my thinking got me me to to, to, to poverty, what's what's the likelihood my thinking is going to get me out of poverty, right? Yeah. This is why we use consultants and therapists, right? Yes. If my thinking has me in a really shitty marriage, (laughs) what's the likelihood my thinking is going to fix it? Probably not. I better read a book or get a psychiatrist or a therapist or something, right? Yes. This is why we have to get outside opinions. Yes. Because our thinking created the problem. You can't believe your own thoughts. It makes you me can't. think of something that, yeah, I can't believe. One of the things I write about in The Power of Consistency is you don't have to think everything you believe and you don't have to believe everything you think. That is so Right? Because powerful. this is a powerful weapon for better or for worse because as, as powerful as it is, it's a lousy judge of character. Like it will act on a bad idea yeah. as much as <laughs> it will act on a fearful idea as much as it will act on a positive idea. It's crazy, right? Yeah. So let's say I'm in sales. I've written a couple of sales books and I work with a lot of businesses and business development. Let's say that my thought is the economy sucks. We don't have enough customers. I'm scared. The I'm whole scared. world is in contraction. We're never going to make it. The whole, the economy's in contraction. What are we going to do? The bank won't loan me money. If that's my thought. You're the sales director. I'm the sales director. What's the very natural emotion that's going to come from that thought, chemically. It's going to be like, oh, here we go again. and Another day in paradise, right? <laughs> Just kind of a down, gloomy, yes. pessimistic perspective. Yes. Once I have that emotion, I walk in the office, what actions am I going to take? Am I going to go in there enthusiastic and optimistic? Let's go build this business. Let's find new customers. Let's find new ways to market this bad economy. I'm not going to do that stuff because I'm going to do the one thing I think that makes sense. Hell, there's no point in just biding time now, waiting for the end to come. You physically can't. I feel that what right. you're saying is that if that is your mindset, that person physically couldn't even fake it. I mean, they could right. for a little bit, but I just, I mean, I see what you're saying. When the thought yeah. is there and you believe this to be true, the economy is going down, I'm scared, the whole world, then, I mean, you physically can't go in with right. that type of energy right. because you've already made your mind up. You are right either way. Everybody's right 100% of the time because we prove ourselves right. It's called a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's why your mother said, be careful what you wish for. We've known this. You don't have to. <laughs> so it, it, it's funny. When The Power of Consistency came out, when that book came out, I got a call from a guy named Ed Nottingham. Yeah. He's a PhD in clinical psychologist. He's written a couple of books of his own. Very, very smart guy, right? He works for FedEx, and he teaches the relationship between thoughts and outcomes in, for FedEx and their leadership programs. He reaches out to you. He reaches out to me, and he says, Mr. Long, i got to tell you, this book, The Power of Consistency, is the simplest explanation of the neuroscience behind decision-making and results and the principles that are the underpinnings of rationally motivated behavior therapy I've ever read in my life. And I'm like, there's a name for this shit? <laughs> You're I mean, like, what? It's like, it's common sense. It's, but but here, here's, here's why it's so powerful. 
take the business example, apply it to sales. Yeah. If I'm a salesman, my thought is, ah, my customers suck. We're more expensive than competition. People don't really care about service and value. They want a cheap price. What's my emotion walking on that call? Everything that just... Oh, here we go. Another cheap customer. Yeah. I can't wait till I get a new job somewhere. Yes. What actions do they engage in? They go in and do a value-based dynamic sales presentation? And that other Hell person no. feels it. Oh. That person oh, feels that energy. Oh, my God. Don't even get energy. me started. Don't even get me started on course. <laughs> Check this out. I'm going to blow your mind right now. Okay, right? I'm ready. I'm ready. So in recent years, scientists have discovered these quarks. They're subatomic particles, right? Which means they're smaller than the atom. They are the basic building block of your fingernails, of your watch, of your hair, everything. The table, everything, right? Mm -hmm. So scientists start studying these quarks and how they move and how they interact with each other. And they put them under microscopes and they videotape how they interact. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they start creating these patterns. Like, okay, that's, they do this thing over and over. They create these patterns. Then they videotape them under human observation and they interact with different patterns. They do different movements under human observation. This is the essence of our energy. That's, I was going to say, is yes. that the essence? That's that why when you said they could feel it, of course they can feel it. <laughs> yeah. 70% of our communications are nonverbal. Yeah. 70% of what you're experiencing right now is facial expression, hands expressions, the energy. Right. You can feel and, it when you walk yeah. in the room. And so if I walk into a sales car on a business meeting, I'm like, oh, man, the you're going to feel it. Like, <laughs> like physically, you're going to feel it. Be like, oh, my God. What's wrong with you? Jump off a freaking bridge, man. You're fix <laughs> People can feel it because of the interactions. I mean, our, the, the, the literal interaction you and I are having right now yeah. is affecting the way we feel and then our, our most base elements are interacting. That's the energy. That's insane. Did you ever read a book called, uh, you're probably too young to remember this book. I, I know you are. <laughs> but you may have come across it. The Celestine Prophecy. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Powerful book, written in the 70s. And it's, it, it, at the time, it was kind of new agey, right? And this Everyone's guy there, like, what's this about? Yeah, it's like, it's, like people, it's like this book. This guy's going through this whole story, and he kind of starts getting a vibe on people's energy, different colors. Well, it's not so far-fetched when you think about the energy in these quarks and how we interact with each yes. other, right? I mean, at the time it may have seemed kind of quirky, but now it's like, of course. I mean, I just believe it. You can, yeah. you can just literally tell somebody's mood when they walk yeah, into the room. Totally, you could just feel it. I mean, at least I can. I mean, it just it has very little to it. do with our words, the communication. If I tell you, for example, Apollonia, I didn't steal the bike. That means something, right? Yeah. If I said, I didn't steal the bike. Yeah. It's like, well, then when did you? <laughs> yeah. I, didn't, I didn't steal the bike. Right? Yeah. They all have different implications. Same yeah. words. It's facial expressions, tone of voice, those types of things. So important in business and sales. A whole other conversation, right? Thank you so much for watching part one. Stay with us for part two next week.